This morning we're going to be talking about something that's true for everyone. So it certainly applies to everyone in this room. We're going to be talking about approaching God. Everyone approaches God, even though we approach God in different ways. Uh, you have those who approach God by denial. They pretend like God isn't there, even though He is there. But nevertheless, they're approaching God, even though they're doing so via denial. Uh, there are those who are the sort of, those who see God as the fun spoiler. Um, he's always out to get us and always out to spoil our fun as if he's grumpy. There's the genie approach that views God as subservient to us, doing whatever we want. There's the wishful thinking approach that views God as lacking power or impotent. He, he, if, if he could, he would. There's the deist approach that views God as not listening. There are all these different approaches to God. But in one way or another, we all have our way. We all have our perspective of approaching God. From denial to thinking somehow He's under our thumb and everything in between. It's a relevant issue. How do you approach God? Well, thankfully, Jesus is the ultimate expert on how to approach God. And He loves us, as He loved His original disciples, enough to help us know how to approach God. To get in touch with reality. To know who God really and truly is as He Himself knows. And to know the real and true way to be successful in approaching God. So we're going to learn a thing or two about that. I hope we gain some traction. hope everyone can leave here today with a better understanding of how to approach God. As Jesus talks about approaching God in prayer. So if you have a Bible, Luke chapter 11 is going to be our passage. Luke 11 where we learn about approaching God from Jesus. We're going to focus on verses 5 and following, uh, but really we should go back to verses 2 through 4 as we learn about how to approach God. What, what does this look like? Several weeks ago we looked at what's called the Lord's Prayer. Um, we acknowledge that it's actually the disciples' prayer because Jesus wouldn't have prayed this ever in his life um, because there's a request for forgiveness. Um, Jesus didn't need forgiveness. It was he who knew no sin, but nevertheless... We're going to look at this and see how to approach God as we learn about how to pray. Let's look at verse 2 and learn from Jesus. And he said to them, that is the disciples, the followers of Jesus, when you pray, when you approach God in prayer, that is, say, now let's pause where he says, Father. We're not going to get drug down the details, but just by way of review, that tells us something about how to approach God, doesn't it? When you pray, say, Father. Oh, I need to know who God is in relationship to me, and if I know He's a Father, I'll approach Him a certain way. When you pray, pray this way. Say, Father. Well, as we, we look at the, the bigger picture of things, for us... And he's going to call his disciples wicked. So for, for us, even those guys, for us sinners to be able to go and talk to God and say, Father, that assumes uh, the biblical reality of adoption. We've been adopted into his family. We were antagonistic toward him. Uh, we were at odds with him. But because of the work of the Son that's going to be accomplished, because of what he does in reconciling, because of what he does in resurrecting, we, by faith, are adopted into his family. 
And so, again, if you want to approach God, you should realize that, well, that requires reconciliation. It requires um, adoption. requires all of these things. But we realize He's a Father. And even the best of earthly fathers wouldn't be as good as this Father is because He's perfect. The worst of earthly fathers don't even compare at all. But I want you to be blessed by Jesus, if you will, to be helped by Jesus, to glorify God today by knowing and being reminded that when you approach God, you should think of Him as a Father. The ultimate best Father who is not sinful, doesn't want what's bad, doesn't want to get something from you. He's a true good Father. When you approach God, approach Him as Father. Intimacy, closeness, care, provision, power. It's good for us to remember that. Well, let's keep going. It says, uh, if we keep going, Jesus says, Hallowed be your name. That's worth a reflection or two as well. Not in contradiction, but in complement. And it helps us to see that God is complex because we go to Him as Father and yet if we're to say, hallowed be your name, and we talked about what that would look like in its application several weeks ago, but for now, let's just see what that tells us about who God is. If His name is to be hallowed, we want His, his name to be put on display in the world, well, that assumes He is hallowed. He's holy. And so now we're seeing that, you know, approaching God, it's not, it's not a complex equation, but God is complex. He's not one-dimensional like a piece of paper. He's grand. You go to Him as Father, and you go to Him as Holy. You go to Him as God. You go to Him as different. That's what Holy means. He's the Creator. You're, he's not a peer. He's not just a buddy. And so we go to Him with the, with the respect due to the One who is none other than God. And yet He's a Father too. When you approach God, keep those things in mind. Well, let, let's keep going. He says, your kingdom come. That's the prayer request that we learned about, but let's at least learn something about God there. What do we learn about God there? Pretty obvious. He's a king. If we're asking, saying, God, your, your kingdom come. The world is a mess. The, 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 the world is fractured. Come and restore things, which is what happens when his kingdom comes, when the king returns. But we should know the obvious. If his kingdom is what we want to have come, it means he's a king. He's the sovereign. He's in charge. He's the great one, worthy of the respect due a king. And again, this isn't simple. Father, Holy One, God, King, Sovereign, in charge, powerful, ruling. We approach God like this? Yeah, we approach God like this. Then verse 3 says, Give us each day our daily bread. Oh, dependent, we're dependent upon Him. He's provider, He's sustainer, gracious. Verse 4, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Oh, so He's a forgiving God too. He forgives us. We should approach Him as knowing He's one that forgives. We would learn elsewhere in the Bible, forgiveness from God is actually founded upon redemption. We have, we have a basis for it, and that would be in the work of, son, of the Son. 
So he's a forgiving God. He's, a, he's an atoning God, a, a redeeming God. He forgives our offenses through atonement. This is a great God that we approach. And then it says, and lead us not into, into temptation. So he guides us. He, he's our shepherd. He, he, he leads us. I wanted us to learn or be reminded of some of these great things about who God is so that we can understand that, that when we approach Him, we approach Him with, with these things in mind. He's the great sovereign King who's our Father, who forgives, who's atoned for our sins and reconciled us to Him. We're adopted into His family so that we can go to Him as Father. It's amazing. It's amazing. I hope what's happening right now is you say, well, I, I, I want to pray. With, with, a, with a certain amount of boldness and a certain amount of reserve. Yeah. But it makes me want to pray. It makes me want to approach this God. He's the kind of God I would want to approach because of what He's done for us. Now, I think we could do a whole sermon just on that. I guess we have. But here's my question. Is this enough? If you know that, is that enough to go on? Now you know how to approach God. Now you know how to approach God in prayer. And I want to go out on a big limb and be, be kind of risky in front of this holy God. I'm going to take a risk and say, it's not enough. It's not enough to know this. It's awesome to know this. But it's not enough to know this. And I know that it's not enough to know this. How do I know? Because Jesus goes on to give us more. If it would have been enough just to know this, Jesus wouldn't keep talking about prayer, and He does. He wants us to be at that place, and then it's as if He takes us by the hand, and He says, I'm going to tell you something else about prayer. And I'm going to give you fair warning. He's going to tell a couple of stories, and the, the people He chooses to use as illustrations aren't ordinary kinds of people. Probably not the kind of people that you would use as examples. But Jesus uses them. Jesus sometimes likes to uh, offend our sensibilities. To get us to, to get the point. To kind of rock our little boat. So that he can be mean? No. Again, so that he can help you and help me as he's helping his disciples. To know who God is and therefore to know how to approach him. That's what we want to do. I hope it's good for us. Luke 11, 5 to 13, two stories that are going to help us and also honor God. Two stories that help us and they honor God. Story number one, verse five. And he said to them, which of you, oh, by the way, just a little bit of comic relief. I mean, when you hear Jesus say things like that, you know, you kind of take shelter. I mean, he has, he has this reputation for saying things like this, and it's kind of like, oh, duck. Because there's often a misconception about what reality is and a misconception about who God is and what he's like and how to approach him. So here we go. Here we go. Take shelter. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. 
for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. Let's pause there for a moment and acknowledge that none of us has a friend like that because no one has ever asked me for a loaf in my life, right? We don't talk like that. But it doesn't take much imagination to figure out what he's getting at. We know exactly what he's getting at. Think in terms of a couple thousand years ago, Middle Eastern culture, uh, higher on hospitality than we are. Even now, higher on hospitality oftentimes than we are. I met a lady just this week, and she was, telling about the, she was talking to my daughter Natalie, and, my, and, and she was talking to the two of us about where she's from, and, and she said, if you came to my country, they would treat you like a god, almost. She said, I think she realized who I was. Um, <laughs> she actually knows what I do. So. But her point was, in my country, we show great hospitality to visitors. We treat you like royalty. First century, Middle Eastern culture, you have a visitor, you have family in town, you, even if it costs you greatly, even if in a sense you have to pretend like somebody you're not, you need to make sure that you show them hospitality. It's a, it's a, it's a virtue. And so here, which one of you? If somebody comes at midnight... Knocking, what would you do? How would you respond? And again, think in terms of you you can't go to the grocery store that's open 24 hours a day. You can't go to 7-Eleven. You can't go to 7-Eleven because we don't have them in Omaha. But, (laughs) And even then, you know, it used to be 7-Eleven. Where does it get its name? From 7 to 11. They're open from 7 to 11. Wow, that's extraordinary. Not anymore. 7 to 11, change the name. It's 7-Eleven and it doesn't mean anything because it's open 24 hours a day. But the idea is, you don't have that. You can't go to the convenience mart, the 7-Eleven. You can't go down to the grocery store. Um, it's, it's, it's not that kind of culture. And so this is an emergency. I, I have to save face. I have to show hospitality. This, this has to happen. Where did we stop? Verse 7? Okay. Verse 7. And he will answer from within. Do not bother me. Sounds like what I would do. Um, do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. You know, come back in the morning. What's your problem? There they are. They're one one room house. They're all tucked in. They're all in bed. It's midnight. What what are you thinking? Go away. I can hear you through the cracks. We don't have pillow windows. I mean, this is the old world. Get out of here. And then verse 8. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his, that's the asker, because of his impudence, he, that is the asked, will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, first of all, we're going, what? impudence or as I said first hour impudence and it was corrected by multiple people thank you I'm glad for that I was just afraid I was going to say something I shouldn't say it's a weird word I've never used that word ever before in my life except a couple hours ago in first service or reading the Bible or teaching the Bible impudence what 
Now, sometimes, I mean, I'm thinking, what were, the, what were the ESV translators thinking? We don't use that word. There were at least a couple of people first hour that have used the word before. Anybody in this room? You smart, you smart ladies. It's all ladies, too, know this. Usually first hour, there's a, you know, the grammar expert sits in the second row, and I was glad she wasn't here today. So, first hour. Um, actually, I wasn't glad she was, you know, you, you know what I'm saying. But oftentimes, sometimes I should say, translators use a hard word like that, like they did in the English Standard Version, because it's a complicated word, even in the Greek New Testament. It's a hard word to translate, so <laughs> let's use a hard word in English that we don't even use very often, and it makes us go, I'm going to look that up in a couple other translations. I might look that up in a, in a dictionary even. Impudence? What is that? Some have helped us by using synonyms and synonymous statements, bold persistence, audacious persistence. I start using words like bothersome persistence. The person that you know and I know that just won't drop it. The person that won't take no for an answer. The person, you know, that person. And that person just keeps knocking. Until eventually they, they, they get up out of bed and they say, all right, here, here you go. Now leave me alone. At least in this story, that's how it would go. But Jesus makes the point about bold persistence, bold, audacious persistence. Irritatingly bold, perhaps we could say. And what's Jesus talking about? He's talking about how believers should pray. That's messing with me. Is that how you pray? You just won't take no for an answer. You just won't drop it. And when you talk to God, this is just how you are. At least in the first hour, somebody sitting toward the front sat here and went, <laughs> I'm like, I'm glad. Because <laughs> I'm standing before you all going, I don't pray like that. This is making a point about the prayer. It's not making a point about God. Remember, parables are designed to make one essential point, and many a bad theology has been birthed by people reading into all the details of parables. God never sleeps. Psalm 121, verse 4. The point isn't about God. The point is to push us. Jesus is doing that to, to be persistent in prayer. I don't know about you, but this raises questions. And at least right now, I don't plan to deal with the questions. You don't let it go, is the idea. And Jesus uses the story to tell his disciples, I want you to pray like that. I'm thankful for this. I'm thankful because I don't really pray like that. I'm far too reasonable and rational to pray like that. And I've got a few day head start on you, so I've started praying like that. So I'm feeling very self-righteous. <laughs> I do this. Yeah, for like 36 hours. <laughs> but I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged. Rebuked. And then encouraged. Why do I drop it? 
Jesus seems to be saying, don't drop it. And again, there are fair questions associated with this. Let's keep going. In verse 9 it says, And I tell you, I tell you, Jesus said, ask, literally in the Greek text, keep asking, persistent asking, and it will be given to you. Seek, literally keep seeking, keep on seeking, and you will find, knock, keep on knocking, and it will be open to you. Perhaps even a progression is meant there. You ask, and then it's more intense and you seek, and then it's more intense and you knock, and you're boldly persistent about this. Then verse 10 says, For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Maybe it helps us a little bit to keep it in the context of of the prayer that came before kind of things we pray for. Yes, indeed, we pray according to the will of God. That's important. But here's what I'm good at, which is always a risky thing to say. Here's what I think I'm good at. I think I'm good at being discerning about prayer. You see, because I want to know what the Bible says about as many things as I can, and I want to know what the Bible says about prayer. And so I want to realize and know there are certain things that ought not be prayed for. Things that are just unbiblical, you shouldn't pray for those things. That's right. We know that. And so I try to be discerning and think, I'm not going to pray for that because that's not even something you should pray for. It's like the little kid that prays for Satan to become a Christian. It's impossible. It's dumb. But we kind of pray that way sometimes, and we shouldn't pray for those kinds of things that we know are patently unbiblical. And the list could go on. It could be a long list. I feel pretty good about being discerning about that. And some of you do too. That's why you come to Omaha Bible Church. Birds of a feather. And we should be discerning. And you hear somebody pray for something they shouldn't be praying for, and you're thinking, oh, brother, I'm going to pray for them if they grow up and learn a Bible verse or two. You shouldn't pray for that dumb stuff. It's anti-biblical. I'm pretty good at that. I'm not very good at what Jesus is talking about here. And I'm not saying it's either or. But somehow in my mind, I think it is either or. Because I got this stuff worked out and I think we should have it worked out. But I've got it worked out and somehow that then I just leave it there and somehow I forget this. And so today's a great day to become boldly persistent in prayer, even if you don't know exactly how it works out. We're going to get to this later, but by the way, Romans chapter 8 talks about how the Holy Spirit intercedes for us so that when we don't know how to pray, context would be we don't know how to pray according to the sovereign will of God. We don't know how it's all going to work out. So the footnote in Romans 8 isn't, so don't pray. No, it's actually it's actually empowering, if you will. Better word, that's got too much baggage. It's actually, it's actually freeing. So we pray and we pray like Jesus is saying with boldness and persistence, knowing full well that it's not in line with God's sovereign, perfect plan. Romans 8 takes care of it anyway because the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf. He's the divine translator. By the time it gets to the, to, to the throne, it's right. Let's take Jesus' words to heart and be boldly, audaciously persistent in our requests. For biblical things, yes. Within biblical parameters, yes. But I've been overlooking this, and I'm thankful that I'm coming face to face with this, and I hope some of you are as well. 
One objection is going to be, well, God's not hard of hearing. That's how we think. He heard me the first time. Or, God is sovereign. Now, who knows that God's not hard of hearing and God is sovereign better than anybody else? There's a big hint behind me. He died on a cross, okay? Jesus, right? So much so, how about this? In, in Matthew's account of this, where we have more details, same thing, but more is recorded about what Jesus said when he taught the disciples how to pray. He says, don't pray with lots of words, because that's just what pagans would do. He says, your heavenly Father knows what you need before you even ask. Matthew 6, 8. So the objections just fall flat on their face. My objections, because that would be my kind of objection. God's sovereign, He knows. Well, God's sovereign, He knows. And Jesus underscored that boldly. And He says, you pray with bold, audacious persistence. I'll be honest with you, I don't know how all this works together. But I do know I need to become more audaciously persistent in my praying. And if if some of you are going to maybe feel better if I theologize a little bit, because birds of a feather flock together. (laughs) Just remember God is sovereign, absolutely sovereign. And God ordains the ends and he ordains the means to the end. So he works through prayer, yes. It's not like somehow we're trying to twist God's arm to get him to do something he never planned to do. And we we could talk about that at length and I don't really want to do that here and now. But what I do know is God the Son says, you pray like the guy in this story. And you just keep on and you keep on and you keep on. I'm thankful for this. This is one of those days, I just have to tell you, that I'm thankful for expository preaching, even though I'm the preacher. I'm thankful for preaching through books of the Bible because Just to be honest, I would never preach on this in my life because it doesn't really match my practice. And God in His perfect wisdom has us look at the full counsel of God and He graciously guides us and redirects us and helps us. And when this becomes a strength, then what about this weakness and blind spot? It's so good. So helpful. Let's move on. Number two, a second story that's going to essentially make the same point. Uh, In verse 11, what father among you, okay, duck, um, no. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Class? Nobody would, right? I mean, this is just a general truism. He's talking to his disciples and, oh, which one of you guys? Which one of you guys would do that? Those of you who are dads, we know Peter has a mother-in-law, so we know he's married, so we know he's not qualified to be a pope, but that's another conversation. Do they have any kids? I don't know if they have any kids or not, but some of them must have been fathers. And so he says, which one of you dads? If your son says, I'm hungry, can I have a fish? Would instead do something that would poison him. You wouldn't do that. So it's in the context of teaching us, disciples, how to pray. How do you pray? You're thinking about God as Father, 
not sinister, not trying to hold anything back from you. He's actually a gracious father, unlike no other earthly father. And if you can argue, you can learn from how you do it. You're arguing from the lesser to the greater. He's only going to give you what's good. Don't be like, oh, should I ask? Should I not ask? What's he going to give me if I don't ask the right way? Ask! He's, he's the good giver of every good gift. Just, just go and ask and, 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 and ask him like that. Then the point is made even clearer in verse 13. If you then who are evil, and we just stop for just a second. We're not going to really go there, but just tuck that away in the back of your mind when you need to remember the nature of human beings. He's talking to the disciples. If anybody's not evil, it's the disciples of Jesus Christ. And he says, you guys who are evil, and he doesn't defend himself. He, he doesn't defend his argument. He knows that they know their Bibles well enough. And they're not going to argue. If you being evil, why, why would he say that? Well, because they're sons of Adam. They're part of the human race. If you being evil, fallen, Jeremiah 17, Niners, Know how to give good gifts to your children. And again, that's just a tuck away somewhere else. It's a great passage where we do learn that people who are inherently evil do relative good. Because these guys are doing relative good. You who are even patently evil when it comes to earning a favor with God and doing what's right in the ultimate sense, you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more, I told you it was an argument from the lesser to the greater, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Evil people do relative good. God in no way, shape, or form is evil at all. Not even close. And so obviously He's going to give you good gifts. So ask and just keep on asking. How do you approach God? You approach God as if He were good because He is good. So you just go. If my kids thought I will only ever always give them good gifts whenever they came to me, they would never leave me alone. They wouldn't be like, oh no, i got to go ask dad again. Uh. But that's kind of how I think about prayer. If we can remember who God is, and God is not wicked in the slightest he's inherently good and the giver of all good gifts i, I want to go i want to pray god i need amen well that's not how we're supposed to pray well you know what not entirely but you see it here i mean if you were just to look at prayer in the bible sometimes you've got the the, the awesome exquisite adoration and it's praise and we don't do that very good but then we overreact and we forget the bible absolutely is filled with god i need amen we're dependent and He's a gracious giver. It's both. So let's not overreact. He's going to ask. He's good. He's a good Father. We can expect only good gifts from Him. Even in a broken world. Romans chapter 8 would have even the brokenness of the world being for our good. I'm not saying the brokenness of the world makes up the good gifts, but... He's so good and so good to us that He gives us good gifts and even the brokenness that we experience and create is used for us. Now, there's something rather striking about this that, that deserves a second glance. Verse 13 deserves a second glance. 
If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give? This is kind of out of left field, it seems. The Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Why does Jesus say that? There's some debate here because he doesn't say why he says that. I'm of the opinion that he says that because when you think about every... Let me put it this way. Because the Holy Spirit is the ultimate gift. When you think about all that's true for you if you're a Christian and you see how how that relates to the Holy Spirit, you go, all these great things that are true of me as a Christian, it's... These things are tied to the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and let's put it negatively. If it weren't for the Holy Spirit, you would have no good gift from God. And I'll go through a list. I have a, I have a lucky list of 13. Okay, Christians shouldn't be um, superstitious because we believe in the sovereignty of God and the providence of God. So I like 13. I use 13 whenever I can. I'd like to live on the 13th floor. Um, cyclists, when they race... When they get number 13, they turn it upside down because they don't want bad luck. I can't wait to get 13 sometime. I'm going to put it right side up. Not superstitious. So I got a list for you. How do I start talking about that? Um, Think about all that the Holy Spirit does. I've got a list of, a starter list of 13 works of the Spirit that are vital, essential, I dare say they represent the best gifts God has given you. So I think that's why he's using it. There's no greater gift than the Spirit and the gifts that the Spirit gives you. And so if God gives us the Spirit, all the other stuff is a given, pun intended. It's a given. The Holy Spirit, number one, is the bringer of the kingdom. The bringer of the kingdom. Especially thinking about Luke and Acts and and how Luke and Acts are put together and how it's unfolding. And thinking about how Jesus is anointed by the Spirit uh, as he read from the scroll in Nazareth, Isaiah chapter 61. And that's tied to Messiah coming. And then not only that, you've got this inbreaking of these kingdom works that happened during Jesus' earthly ministry. And all of that then comes to this great culmination in Acts chapter 2 in this unique, extraordinary outpouring of the Spirit in this new covenant realm, this new covenant world. You go, Spirit. It's amazing how much Spirit is emphasized. You could put it in these terms. What, what were the believers looking for? Well, you could put it in lot. They're, they're looking for the king. They're looking for the kingdom. They're looking for restoration. You could say, in effect, by saying those things, they're looking for the Spirit. They're looking for the unique, extraordinary work of the Spirit in bringing the kingdom and bringing the Messiah. It's another way of saying that. I think we're on a right footing at least to start there. If He has given you me, if He's giving you the Spirit in this unique, extraordinary, anticipated, awaited age, it'll give you every good gift. Number one. Number two, the applier of Christ's work to believers. The applier of Christ's work to believers. Jesus could have done everything that He did, and if it weren't for, if it weren't for the Holy Spirit, applying it to your life would be of no benefit. 
It's that good of a gift. Number three, the one who seals the believer for security. The one who seals the believer for security. We've been sealed by the Spirit as a king with a signet ring would seal the letter so that it would only be opened by those who have been granted permission to open it. He seals us with the Spirit. That's a great gift. There'd be no security apart from the Spirit. Number four, the one who regenerates the spiritually dead. The one who regenerates the spiritually dead. John chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 2. There would, no one here would be a believer. No one would be a believer if the Spirit of God didn't enliven people. That would never happen. He does that. Number five, the one who baptizes believers into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Places us into the body, makes us part of the body of Messiah, body of Christ. Number six, he's the helper, as Jesus said. He's the unique, supernatural, divine helper to help us as Jesus left. Number seven, he's the prayer translator. Romans chapter eight, we talked about that. Number eight, he's the convictor of sin. There would be no conviction of sin if it weren't for the Spirit. Number nine, the empowerer of spiritual gifts. Jesus gives the gifts, Ephesians chapter four, but who empowers the gifts? It's the Spirit. They're spiritual gifts. Number 10, the source of all spiritual fruit. The source of all spiritual fruit, Galatians chapter 5, where does the fruit come from in my life? It comes from the Spirit, whether it's love and joy or peace or patience or kindness or gentleness or self-control. Did I miss one? Did I say love? Anyway, you get the idea. He's the sanctifier, one who grows us spiritually. He sanctifies us even with his word. Number 12, he's the illuminator of divine revelation. He's the one that turns the lights on so we see and understand and comprehend things like we didn't when we were not saved. Number 13, lucky number 13, the power of resurrection. The power of resurrection. The Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, the New Testament says. Oh, yeah. He's the Spirit who will raise you from the dead. Apart from the Spirit, you got nothing. But with the Spirit, we have everything. And so we go to God knowing that He's good and He's a good giver and He's our Father so He would never withhold anything that would be best for us and He will never give us what is bad for us. So we go with boldness and we go expecting because of who He is. Just think about the Trinity here for a second in light of our text. The Father's talked about. The Son, obviously, is the one speaking. And then we have the Spirit of God involved. And and elsewhere we would see, yeah, the Father's work of purposing, planning. The Son's work, redeeming, among other things. You've got the Spirit's work of applying, among other things. God is so good. God is so gracious. How about this? In and through Christ, by the power of the Spirit, God is so approachable. Makes me want to say with Charles Wesley, bold I approach the eternal throne. Makes more sense. Makes more sense when it comes to prayer. And better than Charles Wesley, I think of the author to the book of Hebrews. What does the book of Hebrews author say in chapter 4, verse 16? Let us then with confidence, boldness, Audacious confidence, maybe, would be what we learned from Jesus. Draw near to the throne of 
God? Yes, that's true, but it's not what he says. Let's just tease that out a bit for a moment. Bold, I approach the throne. I go to the throne of God and I just go boldly to the throne. And you might be saying to yourself, if you're a reasonable person, you're crazy. Bold, I approach the throne of, some of you know what it says? Throne of grace. It's the throne of grace because of the work of the Father, because of the work of the Son, because of the work of the Spirit. It's a throne of grace. It's Daddy's throne. (laughs) It's our Father's throne. And so, yes, it's still a throne. But we go and we run like we're kids. You know, just like kids don't always understand the implications of everything, but fathers understand a lot more. He understands everything. And so we go. And we ask. And we ask. And we ask. And we ask. And he's never going to say, get out of here. I'm tired of you, kid. Because he sent his son into this world to help us. And the father said of the son, remember, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So he takes great pleasure in his son. And then what does he say? From heaven, he says, listen to him. And today we have opportunity to listen to Jesus who says, be audacious in your praying. Be bold in your praying. He's not saying be unbiblical. Well, be bold. Ask. And I don't know about you, but I'm thinking, okay, what are the greatest longings that I have? Well, I hope some of them are the longings that are spelled out for us in Matthew chapter 6. In Luke chapter 11, your kingdom come, your will be done, hallowed be your name and those things. I, I want those to be the longings, but I've got some other longings too that I don't know if they're biblical or unbiblical because they're not things the Bible says can't be true or aren't going to be true. And I've got all these longings just like you do. And I'm starting to pray for those things, even things I haven't prayed for for a long time. I want you to also. That's what Jesus is saying. Apparently, it would honor God to have it be, be that way. It'd be good for you too. He's not going to grow weary. He's not going to grow tired. Answer might be no. Uh, but by the time it gets translated and gets to the throne, the answer will be yes. <laughs> God is a good, good God, good Father. Let's not be too, um, let's not think ourselves more complicated than we should. Go to him as daddy. And he's guaranteed everything for us. So we express our dependence on him. It's great. Freeing. Freeing. Let's stop for now. Father, thank you for your your kindness and teaching us about how to approach you through your son Jesus. He of all people knows how. Change us um, in the way we pray and the way we think and the way we approach you. 
Help us to keep growing as Christians. Thank you for your instruction and your patience and your long-suffering nature. We do have great longings. Help us to not tire of expressing them to you. And help us to remember that you don't grow tired of hearing from us. In Jesus' name we pray.